Hello and welcome to the DH Effect. My name is Sonia and my co-host here is Hillary. Hi, Hillary. Our focus this month is on our very special HEART method, an acronym that reviews the process of companioning through challenging times. Our guest today is an expert at walking along uh, families, especially children. Oh, Elena Walczak is president and CEO of Calm in Santa Barbara. I feel calmer just in her presence. She's created this safe space where people can come in and really get the help that they need. Their mission really started with how can we stop abuse before it even starts? How can we support families that have chronic trauma? We're so honored to have you here today and, and find out not only how can we support your mission, but those who are listening, I mean, maybe they are victims or witnesses to abuse or how, how can they seek help? So welcome, Elena. We are so grateful to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be with you today. Thank you so much for having me. So Elena, would you first, we would love to hear first, like how Calm came to be and how you in particular were drawn to your mission to get to the heart of the matter in abuse prevention. Sure. Well, the origin story I think is a really powerful one. Calm is more than 50 years old. Um, we were founded in 1970 by a woman named Claire Miles. And Claire heard of a very unfortunate story where there was a young father um, who had an infant and could not get his baby to stop crying. He didn't have any resources. He didn't really have anyone close enough to call upon for help or support or suggestions. And um, for those of us who are parents, we know how frustrating it can be to feel so helpless in that moment to have a screaming infant and not know how to soothe or not know how to calm. And so he didn't know, but he was frustrated and he was shaking his baby and he ended up shaking his baby to death. And Claire heard about this story. She was a nurse and she heard about the story as it was going through the court system. And she just made a pledge that she didn't want any other parent to go through the horror of a loss like that. You know, he testified that he never, ever wanted to hurt his infant. He just didn't know what to do. He just didn't have any support or any resources. And so she took an ad out in the newspaper and basically, you know, just an ad that said, stress parents, please call. She called upon some of her friends and colleagues and they staffed a warm line um, just to make themselves available uh, to other parents. And within the first month, 30 or 40 other people called. It was really grassroots. It was just one person seeing a need, taking action, utilizing the resources and connections she had to really create this community support. I think Claire would be so overwhelmed to know that Calm is now a, a $10 million organization that spans all of Santa Barbara County with 115 staff providing therapeutic services to children and families um, experiencing all types of traumas. Um, I think her daughter is still connected as an honorary board member of ours. And so we really love that her legacy lives on day to day. Um, but our mission today is that CALM works to prevent childhood trauma, 
to heal children and families and to build resilient communities throughout Santa Barbara County. So really that legacy lives on. And I was drawn to the mission. For me, I just, this is my life's work. Um, I've always been drawn to, I've only worked in the nonprofit sector, the social sector, um, and I've always been committed uh, and passionate for children and families, strengthening um, the elimination or prevention of violence or different types of traumas. And when this position came open six and a half years ago, it just felt, um, I, I felt called. I knew the, my predecessor was a colleague of mine. She encouraged me to apply. I never thought I would be worthy. This organization was kind of, you know, the beacon for me, like the premier organization doing the best work. Um, and she encouraged me to apply and the rest is history. So I just feel so honored to work with such extraordinary colleagues who day in, day out, dedicate themselves, use themselves, you know, they are, they are healers um, to really support the journeys of children and families in need. I have to tell you, I have leaky eyes because um, I just, the, the, I am so moved, you know, telling the story of Claire, I'm so moved by people who, when things are difficult and hard, lean in instead of turn away. Um, and that, like, I'm having a hard time even, <laughs> even saying it um, because I think that it, that is where the healing helps for ourselves as well, but also for the community. Um, you can do good, you can be good. Um, we can find this way to support each other and, and find this, this belonging that we talk to. And in a way that's respectful, because I think the thing that, that I'm so interested in, you really have these three key areas. And I'd love if you can explain them a little bit more, because a lot of times from the outside, and a lot of people, by the way, think that they're on the outside who may not be on the outside because you talk about, I know, ACEs, and that'll be something that probably comes out through this discussion. But when we look at, um, you know, people will be, oh, that is a horrible thing that's happening over there. Oh, that happens to these people without the realization that this is happening to the person next to you. This is happening to the child that is friends with your child maybe happening in your very home. And so it is not in other people's problem. This is something as a community we have to tackle. And so again, I'm sorry, a little, a little long-winded, but I was feeling very <sighs> by, by the mission. Um, but can you touch on those three areas and what that yeah. really means, the prevention, healing, and building? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say, just to your comment, like what I love about Claire is it, she knew it was her issue it wasn't her infant, it wasn't her son, but it was her community and she wanted to make a difference in her community. And as you say, trauma impacts all of us. And, you know, coming out of the pandemic where I think we all learned a bit about trauma and the emotional response um, and the helplessness and um, the fear and the anxiety of living through something um, so horrible, so tragic. Um, and when that is a child's life day in, day out, I think we all got a glimpse of it. And it it is impacting people we may not even know. And um, so I just love, I, I appreciate that you resonated with that. I love that part of the story that 
that, that infant was hers, you know, she, it's all part of our community, but yes, I like to talk about the three parts of our mission because it really sums up the totality of the work we're doing. So preventing childhood trauma, really trying to work as early as we possibly can with families, even expectant families before babies are born Um, meeting families where they're at, that is a big part of what we're doing. The respect, Mm -hmm. um, that you talked about recognizing that all families, all parents have strengths and building upon that wherever possible. But the prevention part is really working with expecting families or families with very young children perhaps even before a trauma has occurred, really these might be families where there are risk factors. Um, And we know that the the highest risk for a family is stress. When there are higher levels of stress, trauma is likely to occur. And we use the, the term trauma now at this point rather than abuse. It includes abuse. So we are working with families that may experience physical abuse, sexual abuse, or emotional abuse or neglect, physical neglect, or emotional neglect. But trauma also encompasses domestic violence, substance abuse, mental illness, death or divorce of a parent, anything that interrupts that connection between a parent or a caregiver and a child, because that bond is the most important thing that will carry a a child forward. So the prevention programs are meeting with families in their homes. A lot of our work is home visitation, helping families along the developmental milestones. But again, really supporting families, perhaps even before something has occurred. Um, The healing children and families is providing therapeutic interventions. So we use evidence-based modalities. I think the gold standard for trauma work is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, but we also use dialectical behavior therapy, parent-child interaction therapy, a variety of um, interventions that some of our families receive once a week, you know, the typical 60-minute hour-a-week session, but some of our families, um, they're in the system um, they may be referred to child welfare services. They, um, children might be in the process of being removed from their families, or maybe they're reuni- reunifying with their parents, their biological parents. Um, those families might be receiving up to six to eight hours of therapeutic intervention. Um, and again, we're meeting those families where they're at. So whatever the needs are, that department actually is called whatever it takes. And it's really true. It's we are doing whatever it takes to support the family in that moment, um, meeting in their home, meeting at a park, meeting out in the community, meeting in our offices. Um, and then the last part of our mission is building resilient communities and That's where we realized as an organization that we couldn't wait for children and families to find us. And we didn't want to wait too long. So we started to embed our clinicians in community settings. So in preschools, in elementary schools, um, the most recent partnership is embedding our therapists in pediatric clinics and really partnering with pediatricians, helping them to screen for traumas. 
you know, the brain is almost fully developed when a kiddo turns five. So if you're waiting until kindergarten to identify children that might need supports, unfortunately, those neural pathways, they all get anchored in by age five. So we have to be reaching parents and entire families earlier if we want to try to change the trajectory of that brain development. So a lot of our work, although we work across the age span, we work with teenagers, young adults, middle schoolers, but we're trying wherever possible to load up services as early as we possibly can with families. I mean, the, um, the comprehensive services that you provide is absolutely impressive. Uh, the mission that there shall be no obstacles. I think in a, a previous um, interview, you said every door is an entry door, no matter what the door looks like, but no matter where it is, just reach out and you shall get the services. Um, I'm so grateful. I'm just so grateful. And I am also thinking about the other end of it. Um, you know, you came to, you were asked to lead calm six years ago. Uh, through, and through a pandemic, we continue to go through the pandemic. And you've said something, um, you've, you've noted compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. So now I'm thinking about the care providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you being that the president and CEO is holding up, you know, how to, and, and parents also being the caretakers as well, um, nurturing the souls and the light and the energy to provide these services um, I have to first ask, how are you doing? Oh, thank you. I, I think, like all of us, the last couple of years have been a roller coaster of emotions, and it was no different for us at Calm. I think, um, you know, you mentioned compassion fatigue and secondary trauma. So those of us who are in the trauma field, um, we have to take it very seriously because as helpers we take on the traumatic effects of those we're helping. And so secondary trauma, vicarious trauma is a real thing when our clinicians are holding the stories of the children and the families that they're supporting, it takes a toll on them in the best of circumstances. Then you layer a pandemic on top where the world shifted, everything went remote. We were learning all new ways of doing therapy with three-year-olds over Zoom. We never thought that would be possible. We were doing it. Um, And, you know, as you can imagine, there's Zoom fatigue in real life, but think about doing uh, trauma session after trauma session after trauma session on Zoom. Um, and you mentioned compassion fatigue, which is a very real thing. After a while, there's, there's only so much you can give to anyone else. And our staff were parents themselves with kiddos at home from school. Our staff was sick themselves, losing loved ones themselves. So there was layer upon layer upon layer of what's already a big deal in terms of secondary trauma, vicarious trauma. We have done our very best to load up into staff wellness, really ensuring that our clinicians have excellent, excellent clinical supervision so that they're getting the support professionally that they need to manage the intensity. What we're seeing during the pandemic is the incidence rates of trauma have increased tremendously. Also, the severity of the trauma that children are experiencing has skyrocketed. 
So that is a really painful thing to say and to acknowledge, but it's very difficult for our clinicians to hold it um, and, and to show up tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and continue to hold these stories. So we have tried our very best um, to take care of our staff professionally and personally. Um, and, you know, this is something I have to walk that talk too. It's not, it does not come easy for me. I can go and educate others about how important it is to take care of oneself. If you don't have a full well, how can you give to others? And then I don't go and do it for myself. And um, I've had to really learn that that's not okay over the last couple of years and come to recognize that, you know, I believe vulnerability is strength. Um, I always have. I think as a leader, I myself am a trauma survivor as well. So the layer, and for me, the pandemic was particularly challenging because my particular trauma was one of loneliness and isolation, emotional abandonment type issues. Ooh, the pandemic brought all that right back. Mm. Um, but I needed to take care of me on so many levels so that I could show up to take care of the staff, to take care of the organization. And I think we each have to do that. Um, but when you're a care provider, whether that's professional or as a parent, I have twin daughters, I needed to be filling my cup every single day because I needed to be able to show up for them in addition to my colleagues and therefore our clients. So I think there's just concentric circles, um, but it, it starts with self. And um, I take that very seriously personally and then try to, you know, embed that philosophy across an agency because we're only as good as our people. You know, the work we do, the service we provide is human compassion and connection. And you can't do that if you're not in a good space. So that became, and, and so that, as we look to the future, um, a strategic vision and a strategic value is really investing in new ways in our staff, because that's to meet this crisis of mental health needs that we're seeing. Uh, we need our staff to be at their very, very best. So we have to load up and load into them. So it goes back to, you know, the leaning in, <laughs> mm -hmm. we have to lean in to this moment right now. No, it really is so powerful. And something that I'm thinking as you're talking to is it's it, it really important. This kind of goes back to Sonia and I talk about this heart method that we have, which is a, a companioning, walking alongside someone and it's holding space for them. And the second one, the E is allowing them to empty their cup. We talk about filling the cup, but when your cup is already full and it's full of yuck, yeah. it's full of heartache, it's full of negativity, it's full of holding everyone else's stories, having the ability to be able to empty that first so that the good things can then fit. I, I, if that, the image makes sense to me, because some, if you have all the yuck and then you're trying to put the good things on top of it, it's still going to overflow. And, and, it, and there's no telling what's going to come out because there's a whole hodgepodge now. Yeah. So I think it is so valuable too, and something to put out to our listeners, whether you're a parent, whether you're a caretaker in some other way, whether you're a nurse, whether you're whatever it is that you're in, being the person, but also finding the person who asks you the questions, who doesn't try to fix it, 
who doesn't say, let me just tell you what you need to do, because that's not what you need to hear, but who says, what was, what was the hardest part about that? Yeah. How can I, how can I be here for you? What is it that you need right now? Those types of questions that allow the, okay, let me, let me get it there. Yeah. I mean, and our work is addressing trauma, but it's also building resiliency and you cannot, you know, in order to heal from trauma, you have to build resiliency. And I think that that, that connection, that empathy, um, having the space, the time to build those honest, open connections and relationships is how you build resiliency. Um, and I think also in the midst of trauma, in the midst of heartache, recognizing that it's okay, and maybe even more than okay, it's essential to still find joy. Mm. Um, I remember in our community when we had um, the Thomas fire and the debris flow, that was our um, a really community-wide trauma. And I remember in the days that followed, I felt so guilty to smile or I felt so guilty that it was sunny and I was walking down the street and I felt happy. And then I was, I would shame myself like, no, no, Mm -hmm. a great tragedy just happened. You must be sad, but we have to hold on to those moments of joy. We have to find those people that we can trust and can confide in because if it gets filled up with all the yuck then there is no room for compassion. And that's when compassion fatigue sets in. And that's when we can't do any more good work. So yeah, you have to empty, replenish, laugh, find joy, um, and keep going. And for our staff, this work is their passion. They're here because they want to make a difference. They want to heal. Um, They want to help others heal and you just, you have to have some intentionality about how you do that or you won't last very long. (laughs) So, you know, you have to keep replenishing. For sure. And I just wanted to, you know, in a previous conversation we all had, you had, you had to say, you you shared something really powerful, Um, you know, what to say, what not to say. We were kind of, Hillary and I were curious about, well, wow, how do we approach others that might have traumatic experiences and we might not know? I think this is just a good point. Like, what what is it that we say? Uh, How do we approach? How do we we create that open door of communication? I mean, I think it's it's first and foremost, just some of what you've already talked about, just being an authentic human (laughs) and expressing care and um, what do you need right now? How can I support you? But I think... um, a big learning that I had, what we're talking about at Calm when we're trying to, in addition to working with the individual child or family that comes into our clinics, like I mentioned, a big part of our work is to help build resilient communities. So resilient preschools, resilient sixth grade classrooms, resilient doctor's offices. And in our trainings with those adult professionals, as they really try to think about creating classrooms that are trauma-informed or medical offices, to really think about the kids and instead of thinking about what's wrong with them, to think about what happened to them. So when this kindergartner um, is crying in the corner and can't engage with the classroom or is biting another student, these aren't bad kids. It's not what's 
what's wrong with this kiddo? What happened? What happened to this kiddo? Maybe there was a really violent domestic violence episode right before school drop-off. Or maybe um, a parent had a really big depressive episode and has not gotten out of bed for three days, so he hasn't eaten. So instead of, you know, really almost blaming the person for their behaviors that they probably can't control, it's really trying to, to dig deep into that empathy to ask the question, what, what might have happened? Um, and then I think it's as, you know, and professional help may be needed for some folks um, to get through the traumas they've experienced. But I think so much can just be done, as you say, of, of being available of being open, um, willing to listen, and um, coming alongside, um, not necessarily attempting to fix, but just creating space. Um, and we all need that from time to time. But um, folks that have experienced multiple traumas, um, there's some complexity to that. And Hillary, you mentioned the acronym earlier, ACEs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if your viewers or your listeners would all know what that is, but it stands, it's A-C-E. It stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And those are the the traumas that I was mentioning before, different types of abuse or neglect or mental illness, substance abuse, domestic violence. And the research shows that the more of those adversities one experiences in childhood, the more likely, it's not necessarily a predictive factor. Again, resiliency can come in and you can interrupt this, but the higher the number of ACEs, the higher the number of adversities, the more likely that child will have lifelong mental health issues and physical health issues. So the risks for depression, anxiety disorders, suicidality, but also the risk for heart disease, stroke, cancer. And you think about it, when we get upset, there is a physiological response. There is a flood of adrenaline that pumps through our bodies and we have a physical reaction when we get stressed. Um, our heart starts to pump, our eyes dilate, our breathing, you know, you know, when you have that response, that fight or flight response, if you're two, or if you're three, or if you're six, and that response is happening every night, Mm. because there's domestic violence, or someone's in a drunken rage, or you're being sexually abused, that hormonal response is flooding your developing organs. Um, It's really changing the way that heart is going to develop or parts of the brain are going to develop. And so this is where we really are trying to educate parents and care providers. Um, And again, it can be redirected at any time the earlier, the better, so that um, children can learn new ways, parents can learn new ways. But these are the types of things that we're trying to walk alongside parents and families to learn about so they can learn some new, some new strategies for how to handle different situations. But I think people don't understand the correlation of these kinds of emotional responses to physical health outcomes later in life. 
But when you start to think about what's going on physiologically, and if you think about little ones having developing organs, it makes so much more sense (laughs) of of how this really gets anchored into the body um, and the trauma response. So I think we just try to share resources and information with families so that they can make the best decisions Mm. about how best to address any of these issues that they may be experiencing. I'm having, um, thank you so much for this. And and I'm having a a little surprise bubble up here. um, Flashback for, you know, my son was, you know, the listeners, anybody who's listened will know that my son was burned really severely when he was 18 months old. Mm. And it was, we were in ICU, he nearly died. We were in ICU for, um, for over a month and he had skin grafts and, um, as a parent, he, the, the things were, um, the control was completely ripped away from me, right? I was not allowed to make any decisions anymore. And well-meaning people came in, even friends, and they were trying to fix everything for us. And they were do this and here, this will help. And here's all the research I did. And it was so overwhelming because you were, when you are in the midst of the trauma and you feel out of control, there is this respect and dignity that you really need and to sit in the dignity of, of um, again, the questions and being alongside and, and knowing that that person is already struggling to find their footing. Um, and so actually the more that you're inundating, the more stress is happening and actually it's having an adverse response. So really coming in to be alongside and to be in the stillness and to listen for the needs and to find ways to give a little bit of control, maybe back to, um, to the person I think is so important. And I'm just, I'm really sitting in that 18 year old feeling right now as we're talking. Well, and I think there's a flooding that happens because there's so much going on. You love so deeply and you you want, but there's, again, like you say, you have no control. The last thing you need is for people telling you what to do or not to do because you need to find your own way. And I think um, regaining your strength, you're, you're knocked over when something like that happens to a child. Like you lose your body. You were supposed to protect. You were all these things, all these hopes, and they're gone So you have to reclaim your strength, whatever that is. You have to be reminded of your strengths. And I think when people, very well-meaning, are giving you a litany of to-dos, it makes you feel less than. And I think you just need a a space to connect. And so, um, and, you know, the thing is, that experience is with all of you for the rest of your life. Um, no matter which role you played in the, in the experience, you were all um, marked by it. And so there's ongoing um, realizations that you'll have at different, at different developmental stages along the way of how it impacts you. And I, and I think that's, you know, we work with children all along the age span, but we recognize that likely children will need to come back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for a variety of reasons, but imagine a young child who might experience sexual abuse, um, they can heal at, you know, the five or six or seven year old that they are. But when they hit puberty, 
all new issues might come up as their bodies change, as they start to feel sexual feelings, they might need some support again, as would parents in both situations. And so not only is there no wrong door for a client to come to calm, but the, the door continues to revolve open. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of our families are self-referrals. They call us and they seek help or their friends got help. So they're now calling. And something we experienced during the pandemic is families who had received services many years ago felt safe and comfortable to come back because they knew they were knocked off their game. And so I mentioned that just like you went through a pretty significant experience and it's done, but it's never done because we continue to evolve. We continue to have experiences. Things will remind you of that experience and you're right back there. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about trauma is it gets encoded in you know, smells or tastes or visual flashes all bring it back. And so um, having the self-knowledge to know that it's okay if you need help again, (laughs) you likely will. It's completely normal. So that walking alongside, it's not time bound. It it keeps going. Just love it. I mean, it's just it's a revolving door. There's no time limit. There's all sorts of revolving doors all around. Um, this has just been so wonderful in terms of learning about calm. You as its leader and the many leader, service leaders out there um, supporting calm. I would love to end before we ask how our um, listeners can find you. But there is a, uh, by the way, everyone, um, Elena is a writer, so she writes continually, and I think it's for NewsHawk. Is that correct? Is that the platform? Correct. And in, so please follow her because what she shares in terms of insight and wisdom and hope and soulfulness is just beautiful. It's kind of like vitamins. Um, <laughs> but I do want to end on the story that you share, um, and it's about the emotional passivity, mm-hmm. and you did something about that. Um, and it was something about a garden. So can you just yeah. share that story? Because I feel like there's a, there's some wisdom within it, but also just celebrating you as well. Yeah, well, I, this, this might be the moment where I get teary. I haven't thought about this story in a bit. But yeah, so I, I referenced, you know, so I have lived through trauma. And so for me, I never felt comfortable at home. Home was never a place I felt safe. Um, I did not experience physical or sexual abuse, but an extraordinary amount of emotional abuse and emotional neglect, and then domestic violence and mental illness and a variety of different traumas. But home was really dark, um, scary, cold. There was an absence, a traumatic absence of connection. Um, And I did, you know, I didn't know it as a child. It was the only place I knew. So I didn't have anything to compare it to. So I didn't know that home can be a loving and a happy and a generative place. For me, home was absence and dearth and darkness. Um, And so home was never a place that was happy for me. Um, You know, I had houses. I just never felt like I had a home. And a little over a year ago, um, some circumstances changed in my life and I have my home and realized that especially given the work that I do, given the pandemic, that I wanted to create a sanctuary and I didn't know how to do it. 
like at all. Like I'm a smart woman, (laughs) I'm capable. And I just got stuck and I didn't know what to do. And fast forward through connections, um, some lovely women entered my life and I call them my garden angels. And they helped me clean out what was and, um, and it just took on a metaphor for my healing that, you know, first you have to kind of clear out the yuck, as you said, (laughs) get rid of the overgrowth, get rid of the underbrush, get rid of all the yuck, and then breathe a little bit and then plant um, and nurture and add in softness. So adding in these beautiful, soft, colorful plants. Um, and I didn't know, you know, I, as I was doing it, I didn't realize I was living through a metaphor, but of course, planting a garden, um, for myself, for my children, creating this space that is a sanctuary for me, but also can be a gathering place for my friends, for my, my daughter's friends. It was powerful. It was transformational. It was, it was really expensive, more expensive than I was expecting. And it wasn't that expensive, but, but that was also a journey of my well being is worth it. My sense of self creating sanctuary and for the first time in my life, making home a place where I feel comfortable and safe and just able to relax is invaluable. There is no price, you know, that's worth whatever, whatever it takes is what it's worth. And So it all kind of happened. I think I probably wrote about it way more eloquently than I just verbally said, but Mm -hmm. it was one of those um, projects that really transformed my life and doing it with my garden angels, having these two women come and walk alongside me, Mm. um, always honoring my decisions, always helping me to see that I did have a vision, even when I was flooded they just helped. They helped me create what I needed to create for myself, for my family, for my home. And uh, it was powerful to say the least. So I had done so much healing for myself. I mean, I have to do constant healing because if you're going to lead a trauma organization and you are a trauma survivor, you better continue to do your work. But the fundamental shift of building a garden no amount of therapy could do that. No amount of reading could do that. No amount of anything. It was, it was something very different and uh, it was really transformational. So thanks for asking. <laughs> I so appreciate it. It's different hearing the story than reading the story and to, it's tr- a truly powerful moment to imagine and walk alongside that story with you. Um, much more powerful than when I read it. So thank you so much. For oh, you're that. so welcome. <laughs> But I think what I came out to is is the tangible. It's something that can be touched. Sometimes the emotion so dis, um, abstract and mm-hmm. that connection of I get to reach out and touch this rock and lift up. You were, you're talking about lifting up this rock and it was heavy and the softness of it all just really con- resonates with me personally and just so my favorite part of the whole thing was when they came in with jackhammers. I had it was just ugly, ugly, ugly concrete. 
And um, this is what was so expensive, but I picked out beautiful, beautiful, beautiful flagstone. But watching them bust up the concrete, I can't even tell you. Um, it was such a physical representation of, mm-hmm. I'd been holding on to so much and it was as thick as concrete and as deep as that. And and you can just bust it all up mm-hmm. and create something different and uh, like, that watching that happen that at any point in our life we can bust up the the con- the constraints yeah. that we have we can bust up our worldview we can bust up whatever is holding us back you can bust it up throw it out and build something else mm-hmm. and again you can say that you can read it but like actually watching it happen before my very eyes in my backyard I, it like brought me to tears a couple times cuz i was like whoa you know the sense of control that you were ma- I was gaining control for my own healing process and on a level that I didn't even know I needed to do. So it was cool. <laughs> what is, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. And I think what is so val. I, I just finished the book, um, the body keeps the score. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really going through that, there is no one right way to heal. And there is no, something that really resonated with me was the fact that, you know, language evolved so that we could communicate with others how to do things. It didn't evolve so we could talk about what was going on inside. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that physical, sometimes we don't have the words because we don't have the words. And so that physical enactment and looking for other ways to do that and that creativity is just, it's so beautiful. I know in listening to you, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to know how they can either connect with you because they may need to do their own work or they can connect with you because they're thinking, Elena's pretty cool and we need to help with this mission. How can they connect with you? Yeah. So, I mean, calm, probably the easiest is we have offices throughout Santa Barbara County. So we have offices in Santa Barbara, Lompoc and Santa Maria, different phone numbers for each, but our website is probably the best place, which is calmforkids.org. It's the number four, calm, C-A-L-M, the number four, kids.org, um, outlines all of the services we offer. There are also a ton of resources. So resources for parents or educators about trauma, about resiliency. We had a lot in there about um at the height of the pandemic, I think a lot of folks were using our resources, but, um, and information about how to get involved. So um, I would encourage folks to check that out. And um, no, and I would also just say that I hope I should have probably started with this, but sometimes talking about trauma and resiliency, like you had your own reaction it brings back things. So people might watch this and feel a little overwhelmed. Hopefully not, but um, feel free to call, calm, or reach out to someone to process if, if that's happening to, to get a little bit more stabilized if you're feeling a little dysregulated. Um, but healing comes at any time. Healing comes when you're ready healing comes in different shapes and sizes. So it might be therapy or clinical supports. It might be getting better sleep and eating better nutrition. It might be getting out in nature this weekend. Uh, Whatever it is, I hope you prioritize it um, because you deserve to find joy and happiness and peace. And you can't do that if you're stuck in a trauma cycle. 
So, um, but healing is personal and healing is powerful. So I hope, I hope you do it <laughs> in whatever way makes sense for you. My mega size cup is full right now. <laughs> Elena, you just filled it in with compassion and resilience and service leadership and to me and advocacy. And it just comes down to one word that just screams at me. It's love. You just exude it. And I just really appreciate it. Um, so everyone, thank you to our listeners and viewers for joining us for this amazing episode with Elena. Please be sure to follow us on all our social media platforms. And we're going to share Elena's as well. Um, and subscribe to your favorite platform. Subscribe to YouTube so you never miss an episode. Check out our website, the dheffect.com for great opportunities to learn and walk alongside others through their struggles and our own. Until next time, may you have the courage to live with a decided heart.
Thanks for taking a beat with us. Feel free to connect with us at the dheffect.com and schedule your complimentary discovery call to help you and your business thrive.